This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When his dad went to war, Bailey Francisco was six. And when his dad Michael came home, it was with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. My dad went from a stud, like athlete, funny, just awesome, awesome dad, to barely human because he's so whacked out of his mind. Bailey lives in Fountain near Colorado Springs, and he tells this story in the documentary After War. He made it while he was in high school. It was in 2014, but he's just been to Washington, D.C., where he showed the film to members of Congress. And Bailey is with us via Skype. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. Uh, Early on in the documentary, your mother tells you about when you were little. This is before your dad went away. Mm -hmm. He just loved you so much, and he wanted to protect you and be the best person he could be for you. Do you remember that version of your dad? Oh, yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Those are some very, very good memories. You know, I think we're having a little trouble with the Skype line, so why don't we transfer to the phone line that we have you on? So, Bailey, can you hear me now? Oh, yeah, Okay. Um, and to that question, do you remember that softer version of your father from when you were little? Uh, most definitely, most definitely. He was, he was a superhero to me. How so? Uh, like he, was, he would just amaze me with magic tricks and, and he was just you know, always picking me up, just always like making me laugh, just always giving me a good time. Your father was in the Army, stationed at Fort Carson outside of Colorado Springs, and he was on multiple deployments. And on one of them in Iraq, you describe in the film that he had a pretty grisly duty. Can you explain what he would do in the aftermath of bombings? Uh, he, would, he would go in, uh, clean up the aftermath of bombings, and um, he came into contact with a whole lot of, you know, bodies of kids and, uh, you know, bodies of women and, elderly people and just a whole lot of grisly images that nobody should see. Did he talk to you much about that? Um, is that how you have a sense of what he did? Um, n- nah, every, every time he talked to me about, uh, well, um, I mean, now, now we talk about it more, but, uh, you know, back, uh, when I was like 13, 14, the only time he would talk to me about, uh, you know, like the grisly stuff he saw was when he was, you know, like drunk. Or something. Hmm. He came home when you were in middle school from these deployments, and how had he changed? Um, he was just just wasn't there, you know, all the way there. He was. He just seemed just so sad all the time, and um, just just no no energy to do anything. You know, he, all, he was always slumped, and yeah, it was kind of hard to see. Was it as if your father had had disappeared? That that he was just absent in your life? Uh, yeah, he it it was it was, it was weird because uh, for the most part, you know, he'd be uh, he'd be pretty drugged up, um, not necessarily uh, like wanting to, not really doing anything, and then uh, like out of nowhere, he'd just like get a whole bunch of energy, and uh, you know, he'd he'd like be there, and uh, yeah, I I don't know, it was. It was just a weird time. Like, I had a dad didn't have a dad. Yeah, it was just weird. Yeah, it was inconsistent, almost almost manic in that respect. Oh, um, You were still quite young, uh, even at that point. Did you know much about post-traumatic stress disorder? Did you know that there were 
you know, really valid reasons that he would be acting this way? Um, I mean, I, I heard, I heard of the term, um, you know, it was thrown around like at doctor's offices and, uh, you know, my house a whole lot. Um, but I, I mean, I was so young, I, I didn't think I was really able to comprehend, um, you know, everything. I just thought, you know, my dad was being a bad guy. And there were occasions, as you describe in the documentary, where he put you in danger. Um, I think of a, a scene that occurred in the kitchen. Will you tell us what happened? Um. Uh, well, he went to a uh, he went to some cooking class. Well, he said he went to a cooking class, and um, he he rang the doorbell when he came back, and I went and answered it. Uh, you know, he was obviously drunk. You know, like disoriented, some on off of something. He was definitely on something, and. Uh, like we were talking and uh next thing i know you know i'm like like back bent over the sink uh with a knife against my neck uh and my mom came in you know broke up the situation uh my dad spent most of the night yelling you know just have it he was acting like an animal you know he was having a uh, breakdown and it was it was really hard to watch um you know my mom handled it like a champ you know she's she's a hero she's awesome my mom is the most amazing woman ever. And um, the way she handled that situation, the way she handled everything is just, oh, man, it's admirable. Here's how you describe the scene in the film. Mm. He had he had a knife to my neck, and he was saying, like, stupid stuff, like, you, you know, I wouldn't hurt you, I love you, you're my son, stuff like that, but he had a knife to my neck. He's like, do you trust me? And I, I didn't know what to say. How do you recover from something like that and regain trust in your father? Um, well, how, recovering from that night, it was weird because, uh, like, my dad got taken away that night. And uh, my mo- I remember vividly my mom and I just watching, uh, uh, like, American Dad or Family Guy or something and just, just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. Just kind of in disbelief. The next day we went to Arizona. That's where my mom my mom's best friend uh jessica lived at the time we went and visited her um other than that you know you, you just gotta keep moving uh and seeing my the way i forgave my dad uh you know, he was trying really really hard he left to california came back you know a different person you know he wanted to be the dad that he wasn't for a while you know and uh like i i didn't forgive him at first i did not want to forgive him at first i didn't even want to want him to be in my life but um, he was just trying so hard to you know he regained my trust and regain everything. And I think uh, making this movie actually was the final nail in the coffin uh, of me forgiving him. You know, like put everything in the past, and we have a we have a great relationship now. Mm. The film is called After War, and we're speaking with uh, the young documentarian Bailey Francisco, who made it. It is about his relationship with his father, who suffered PTSD, also traumatic brain injury, when he returned from multiple deployments. And you interviewed your father, Michael Francisco, in the film. Like, in your opinion, how has like PTSD and stuff changed your life? <laughs> You're not who you used to be. And just dealing with that fact. You know what was happening. No, yeah, I knew what was happening, but, like, did you... Did you feel like you were affecting, like, me and Mom? No, not really. He, he doesn't seem in that clip to have a sense of how profoundly 
uh, his behavior at the time affected you? Do you think he has a sense of that today? Um, I think he, I think he definitely has a sense of it. Um, but at that time when we were making the film, it was still, it was still kind of a taboo topic, and uh, me and him didn't hadn't really gotten a chance to, uh, you know, discuss um, all like his PTSD and everything. So it was, I think, I think he was caught off guard uh, by those questions, and uh, like he just started feeling bad because he he has a deep sense of you know guilt because of it and um that that guilt definitely like um affected our relationship but um after i made the movie uh you know like i was able able to tell him that i forgave him without actually telling him i forgave him cuz i would, i don't know that would just been a weird conversation to have and um i think i think now he definitely he's more aware and um he told me multiple times, like, he, there's no way in hell that he wants to go back to the person he was. How does he feel about the fact that you made this film? And, you know, that even that you're doing interviews like this, in which you're really very public about this painful chapter. Um, at first, he was, uh, he was a little bit embarrassed. Uh, he was like, oh, I'm not going to watch that film, you know. I'm not going to watch a film about the lowest point in my life. You know, nobody wants to see something like that. Um, and so he... I, but he still made sure to, to let me know how proud he was and all this. Uh, but then you know he he came around, watched it, um, became more supportive, um, and uh, yeah, no, he's he's one of my number one fans. Mm-hmm. Your eight- mom, my sister. Your mom and your sister as well. You're 18 now. Just finished your freshman year at Colorado State University, and I guess I want to ask Bailey in in retrospect. Do you feel like your dad and your family had the support you all needed to get through PTSD? Um, well, my, once my dad left, uh, my, my parents got a divorce. Uh, once that happened, you know, uh, my, my mom, me, and my little sister, we were kind of out on our own. Uh, we weren't getting any help at all from the military anymore. Um, we were below the poverty line. My mom hadn't worked in like 10 years. She had to go out and find a job. Which she's killing, by the way. She uh, she just she just got a promotion. Congratulations, mom. Indeed. Um, but no, it was. I don't think we got the. I don't think we got the help we needed. It was a very, very, very hard time, and uh, you know we made it through. But we could have definitely got a little bit, a little more help. And at the time of the documentary, again, 2014, you say an estimated 80,000 veterans in Colorado had PTSD. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Bailey Francisco made the documentary After War about his father's PTSD. And as we said, he just finished his freshman year at Colorado State University. His film grew out of the Youth Documentary Academy in Colorado Springs. And we highlighted another film about skin color called Shade. Find links to both films at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back with a teacher who thinks there's a dearth of Chicano history taught in the classroom. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They're the most important unsolved crimes in Boulder history. That's how Boulder Weekly describes two bombings in 1974 that killed six Chicano activists. There was a ballad written about it, Los Seis de Boulder. Boulder, 
Dos noches en mayo en 74. That song, along with oral and written histories, are all being compiled by the Boulder County Latino History Project. Organizers say this history is largely missing from classrooms in the state. Teacher Jason Romero was an intern with that project when he was a student at CU. He now uses the curriculum in his classes in Denver. And welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. You grew up in Pueblo, where the Latino population is even larger than in Boulder County. Um, was the history of your uh, ancestors missing from your curriculum there, would you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think within the public school system, we didn't really learn any of that information. Um, luckily for myself, I knew individuals who had been involved within the Chicano movement who were community members within the city. So through them, I was able to learn some of this history. But within the schools itself, it was completely missing. You were kind of self-taught in this regard. Right. What, is that, what does that do to your sense of self, you know, when, when people who look like like you and who came before you aren't reflected in your textbooks. I mean, I think for myself, it made me feel invisible almost. It made me feel like I wasn't necessarily a part of the larger American picture. And I just felt invisible almost, which was which was really strange for me because, again, like in the city of Pueblo, the Chicano Latino population is almost 50 percent. So, you know, to not be reflected in the textbooks was really strange for us. Mm. And when uh, Chicanos, uh, Latinos were reflected, wh- what what did you see? What were the representations of them? I think the only real representations we had were from like pre-Columbian times when they were talking about like the Aztecs and the Maya. Like in terms of like the civil rights movement, I don't remember learning any of that in the schools. I want to focus just a moment on the term Chicano Mm -hmm. and why you use it and what it means to you. Yeah, I think um, for me, I don't consider myself Latino because I have no family in Latin America. All of my family is in what is now New Mexico. We were there when that was part of Mexico. We were there when the United States took it over. We were there before any of those countries even existed. So for me, it's really about rooting myself to this place, um, regardless of what nation has kind of um, been in charge at that time. So this history project covers about 1900 through the 1980s. But I'd like to dive into the 1970s, which were really pivotal for Chicanos in Boulder County. Uh, when you were a student pretty recently at CU, mm-hmm. you had the opportunity to meet Augustine Cordoba, right. who was part of a group of Boulder students in the 70s called UMAS. Mm-hmm. Uh, that stands for United Mexican American Students. We heard Cordoba singing in the introduction, actually. What were they advocating for back then? So in the nineteen, um, the late 60s and early 70s, I think what the major issues that they were advocating around were for representation on campus. So in 1968, there were less than 50 Mexican-American students on the, univer- on the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, through the efforts of UMAS, by 1974, that number had grown to over 1,200 students. So having the student body be more right. representative. Yeah, definitely. Um, The big issue that they talked about was parity, having an equal representation of Chicanos, Mexicanos on the university campus as lived in the state of Colorado. And they were fairly successful. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. As we mentioned, in 1974, four Chicano students at CU were killed in car bombings. This happened two days apart, actually six Mm -hmm. Um, one was near Chautauqua, one of right. these bombings. The other was outside of a Burger King. And mm-hmm. they are remembered as Los Seis, the six of, of Boulder. All six were Latino and two were leaders of that student group, UMAS. Mm-hmm. 
I understand that you talk about this song we heard with your, your Chicano studies students. What do you teach them? Oh, yeah. Um, so for me, Los Seis de Boulder was, I think, the reason that I was able to stay at the university. Um, I had a lot of my own kind of personal issues, but knowing that story of Los Seis and knowing the sacrifice of those students is what really encouraged me to stay there at the university. How so? Um, I think, so just like um, to start with, when I first got to campus, there, it was just a complete culture shock. Again, coming from a place like Pueblo where... You know, I was a part of the majority to a place like Boulder where I was an extreme minority. Yeah, it felt very different. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was really strange for me. And then there were just a lot of issues that I had with, like, TAs, um, a couple professors there. And I just felt very unsafe. I didn't feel like I belonged there at the university. But knowing that Los Seis had had essentially sacrificed their lives so that students like me could be on campus, it really encouraged me to stay. And this is in part why you impart this to your own students today. Absolutely, yeah. And that's something that I tell them every day. You know, um, when I was a freshman, I lived in Sewell Hall, and I would walk outside of that building, and right next to it was Temporary Building 1, which was um, the building that was occupied at the time that um, the bombings took place. And so I always tell students about that, and I talk about that sacrifice. And so in class, when we talk about... Um, Los Seis, you know, we really talk about um, the sacrifices that were made because a lot of times people think about the civil rights and they think of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, individuals like that who did great work, but they don't realize that people within the Chicano-Mexicano community also paid the ultimate price. There's no definitive answer about what happened to Los Seis. There was a brief investigation and Boulder police suggested the students were making bombs that exploded on themselves. Others blame the bombings on the FBI. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and we are talking about the Boulder County Latino History Project, which is working to amalgamates a lot of Chicano history in the state and to do trainings with teachers as well so that there's more of this history reflected in classrooms. And so Cordoba, who was a part of this movement in the 70s uh, at CU, uh, told you about what life was like at that time outside of these bombings. And, And he says he really enjoyed that time because he felt a sense of community. Everybody was so involved and, and it was so, so together, so much unity that, you know, you didn't mind getting up on Saturday and, and, and going to a, a rally or, or, or a march or, or you know, a, a boycott Safeway or, or one of the liquor stores, whatever we were doing, you know, because mm-hmm. it was community. Do you see your compadres over there and your friends and, and someone bring food and, and, and I was always there, you know, doing, doing the music, you know. And that oral history will be collected uh, in this project There's a link to it at cprnews.org. This group, UMAS, has some notable alumni, including former Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia. Uh, But it's interesting, a lot of Latinos came to Boulder County in the 1940s to work, yes, in coal mines. Not something you necessarily associate with Boulder these days. They moved up from southern Colorado, where the mines were no longer productive. Many organized themselves. There was a mine workers union. Just briefly, how do you see the student movement connecting to the earlier history in in this area, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that without the community being present already, having 
um, come up since the 1940s and 1950s. I think if the community wasn't present, the student movement would not have been able to take place. It was because they were able to connect with the community. They were able to reach out to people who lived there in Boulder, in Longmont, in Lafayette. And who had already organized. Yeah, exactly. So they were able to see what was effective in that area because each area has, you know, Organizing tactics are effective to different extents in different regions. And so having that community there, having those experiences already present, allowed the students to be more successful. So the Boulder County Latino Project is now training teachers to use these oral histories and songs and writings they've uncovered. A training, in fact, takes place next week. It's drawing teachers from even outside the county, I'll say, um, and you're one of them now in Denver. (laughs) Give me just a few examples of how you integrate more of this history, including the more modern stuff, into your civics and government curriculum. Yeah, so I mean, I think, um, especially when we're talking about um, the civil rights movement using the like Cordova song and the stories that were taking place at that time is very powerful. But especially when, in civics, when we're talking about um, just like being involved on different levels. One story that I really like to use is the story of Emma Gomez Martinez, um, hmm. who was a woman who was involved in the 1940s and 1950s. And there's actually a park named after her in Boulder now as well. Um, and so that's a story that I think is very powerful, especially for the young women who are in my class, who can see somebody who is like them doing this type of work and making positive um, positive actions for the community. And why does she stand out in your mind just briefly? Um, I think because she was doing this kind of political work at a time when not a lot of people of color were. And so for a woman of color to really step up and be involved on that level, um, I think is just very powerful and it's a very strong statement. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason Romero teaches Chicano Studies, Governments, and Civics at Strive Prep Smart Academy in Denver. And we talked about the Boulder County Latino History Project, whose reach is, uh, as we've said, beyond Boulder County. Here's more music from Augustine Cordoba, uh, the track I am Chicano, a proud Chicano. Yo soy Chicano, puro Chicano. Si no le gusta, pues a ver, a ver, a ver. Tengo una historia llena de gloria. Llevo en las venas la sangre de mi querer. El mundo no me comprende. Me llaman nombres otras cosas que no sé, pero les digo. Coming up, pay equity in cycling. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For the Republican Party, Colorado's U.S. Senate race represents a rare opportunity. It's seen as one of the GOP's only chances to pick up a Senate seat. But first, picking who will challenge incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. It's a crowded field, and CPR's Megan Verlee has an introduction. Here's the speed dating version of the five candidates Republican voters will see on their ballots this month. First, 
Daryl Glenn, the El Paso County Commissioner who won top billing with a barn burner of a speech at the state assembly in April. Daryl Glenn, and I am an unapologetic Christian, constitutional, conservative, pro-life, Second Amendment-loving American. That will The rest like let's take alphabetically. There's Robert Blaha, a Colorado Springs businessman who offers something he calls... It's a Robert Blaha product guarantee. He's pledging to reform the tax code, cut the deficit, and drastically reduce illegal immigration. And to do it fast or else. If I don't get it done, folks, in the first term, I go home. Next up, Ryan Frazier, former Aurora City Councilman and small business owner. He talks a lot about programs to get more Coloradans into the skilled trades. I want to offer up policies that allow businesses to come together with the community to identify the training and education so that we can close the middle skills jobs gap. Then there's Jack Graham, former CSU athletic director. He pitches himself as a fiscal conservative, social moderate. And I do not think that the Republican Party has defined itself strictly on the basis of whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, whether or not you oppose gay marriage or not. Those are not the gating issues in the United States of America today. Finally, John Kaiser, former state representative and combat veteran. He hopes to make national security the focus of the election if he wins the nomination. For me, it's personal. You don't trust Iran. And you can't trust Michael Bennett. I'm John Kaiser, and I approve this message. With so many candidates in the field, TV ads like that one are one way they're trying to stand out. But the air war isn't being fought evenly. That Kaiser ad just started running on TV stations last week. Glenn and Fraser have little presence on the airwaves. So far, Graham and Blaha are the race's big spenders. They've each contributed at least a million dollars to their campaigns. And a lot of that money is going to TV ads. You know, it may come down to who can use television to build their name ID the fastest. Jennifer Duffy is with the Cook Political Report in Washington, D.C., She says on a national level, none of the candidates have quite managed to break out of the pack yet. National Republicans tried to recruit a field-clearing marquee candidate into the race, but it didn't happen. It's, in a way, sort of an immature field because you don't have anybody with any experience running statewide. At the same time, while they don't really have the candidates they want, I don't think Republicans are going to to give up on Colorado anytime soon. Republicans are hoping to repeat their success from 2014, when Cory Gardner ousted sitting Senator Mark Udall. However, Bennett's chances may get a boost from the man expected to top the Republican ticket this time, Donald Trump. Many analysts expect Trump's harsh views on illegal immigration and his incendiary comments about Hispanics to bring out Latino voters like never before. That has Colorado's GOP Senate hopefuls walking a fine line. They all say they'll support their party's presidential nominee. But some, like Fraser, Graham, and Kaiser, are keeping their distance. Robert Blaha, though, is more enthusiastic. I'm all in for Donald Trump, and I think Donald Trump will win on the uh, absolutely on every single issue. Blaha was addressing a candidate forum hosted by the Rocky Mountain Black Conservatives last Thursday. It was one of the final chances for the Senate hopefuls to address voters before ballots start arriving in mailboxes this week. And for some who attended, like Lynn Martin and her husband, it was a chance to finally focus on a race that so far has been overshadowed by the presidential campaign. I mean, it's been on the radio and that, but haven't really tuned into it. And I know the primary's coming up. Republican insiders may not be thrilled by the Senate primary's large field, but many at the forum said they're glad to have so many choices. 
Pueblo resident Gordon Shearer was feeling energized after listening to the candidates. Normally we get lousy candidates, so it's kind of nice to have good ones for a change. Shearer says it won't be easy to choose a favorite. Fortunately for him, primary day is still three weeks off. Republican voters have a bit more time to decide which of the five men vying for their party's U.S. Senate candidacy has made the best impression. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. Organizers of a big cycling race in Colorado had a decision to make, whether women would get the same amount of prize money as men. Women don't in a lot of races. Britta Fisher of the Ridge at 38 Criterium is with me. The race is in downtown Wheat Ridge Sunday. That's just west of Denver. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. And what did you decide about prize money? Well, we decided that since we were the state criterium championship this year, this was the year to make the move and say, yes, we're going to give equal prizes for men and for women. So even in your own history, that was not always true. Correct. This is our third year as a race. And the first two years, we did not have equal prizes. And last year, we discussed it quite seriously in the last couple of weeks going up to the race. Uh, But it was too close to the race. So we thought, well, let's maybe work for it next year. And when we were awarded the state championship, we said, definitely, this is the time to do it. Yeah, what do you mean by that, awarded the state championship? So there are many races in the Rocky Mountain Road Cup, and we were competing to be one of those races, and then we also applied to be the state criterium championship, and we beat out other races to be awarded that honor. All right, this means that it's a pretty high-profile race, and so you wanted to use the bully pulpit in this regard. We reached out to Julie Emmerman of Boulder, she was last year's women's winner, and um, we, we wanted to know what she thought about this idea of evening out the prizes. It's pretty unique, especially at the local and regional levels, and hopefully it can reverberate into you know, more national races than international. So she says unique indeed. How unusual is this in the sport of cycling, would you say? Well, last year when the U.S. Pro Cycling Challenge offered equal prizes for men and women, it made national news. It's pretty rare for that to be the case. Is that true internationally as well? I don't know about the international scene as well, but uh, for sure in, in the United States and especially at local races, it's, it's not usually the case. You know, all this makes me think of the lawsuit in women's soccer over equal pay. Women on the U.S. team are paid about a quarter what men are. Um, is, is it that kind of news that prompted this decision? I think it actually it, it shines a spotlight on the issue and it makes it easier for people like me at a local level to work with our sponsors and talk about how important it is to make this level playing field. And on the other hand, fewer women compete in this race, correct? True. So uh, you could look at it just purely by economics and say, well, of course, the purse for men should be larger because there are more men competing and thus the pool is larger. Uh, what would you say? You could, and many races do. I think that for women and men, it's the same cost to register. It's the same cost to train. They're training just as hard. They're cycling just as hard. From an event standpoint, the outcome of a really exciting race is the same. And so that, therefore, it makes a lot of sense to have the equal prizes. And that's interesting. You're saying that the economic and energetic output is the same. Why shouldn't the reward be the same? Correct. But how do you justify it economically for the race? Well, I think whenever you're on the cutting edge of something, you take a leap. 
And so we worked with our sponsors, we worked with our racers, and we said, we're going to take the leap this year. And we think this is where cycling is going. And we want to be at the cutting edge. And we're really excited that while we're only one of a couple of races that has an equal purse split, there are more races this year than ever having equal prizes amongst the top two categories. Ah, this so is something of a breakthrough, a, a breakthrough year, would it you is. say? It mm. is, for sure. You know, professional sports vary a lot when it comes to this. Uh, you say tennis stands out in terms of equality, and I understand that that was what prompted Billie Jean King back in the 1970s. Right. The battle of the sexes with Bobby Riggs was really a turning point for tech, for tennis and for women's sports. It was... Yes, women can compete on a play, even playing field with the men, and they should be rewarded similarly for exciting tennis and for exciting other sports like soccer and cycling. Uh, earlier this year, Novak Djokovic, also in tennis, said men, quote, should fight for more because the stats are showing that we have more spectators on the men's tennis matches. He later pulled back on that. Do you get pushback at all when you decide to offer equal purses? It was a bit of a debate last year. and uh, What did that sound like? Well, it sounds like much like the comments you made earlier. Uh-huh. Like there's more men registrants. Should they get more of, of the prize? But if at s- some point you don't make the leap, you're never going to get as many women as registrants because they are doing as much work. They're competing just as hard. They should have a reward, too. That's interesting. What you're saying is the reason there may not be equal participation is that for so long there was not equal reward. So is it that you expect in the next few years to see more women participating in races like this one? Yes. And in fact, we hope for our own race and registrations are up for women. We expect a marquee year and we'd love to see more women racing. We have over 3000 licensed cyclists here in the state of Colorado. It's a great place for racing and we'd love to see more women feel that it's worth their time, their energy, and their competition to be a part of it. Okay. Having said all of this, we should note that we're not talking about, you know, millions of dollars, as in (laughs) tennis. Um, In your pro category, you have $800 in cash prizes for male and female winners. Correct. So is there a risk of overstating (laughs) what you're doing here? It's a step. We're not the U.S. Pro Cycling Challenge. We're not the U.S. Women's... uh, soccer team, but we are the rigid 38 criterion and we could do our part. And besides the cash purses, which is about $2,200 for the state championships total uh, split between the men and women, we also give another over $5,000. So we actually are awarding over $8,000 in valuable prizes, some of that store credit and biking merchandise. I see. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, and we hope to see people in Wheat Ridge on Sunday. Britta Fisher of the Ridge at 38 Criterium. As she said, it's this Sunday in Wheat Ridge, outside of Denver. And Colorado Matters continues after a break on Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What if your water bill wasn't based so much on how much water you used. It sounds a little bit like, like a weird proposal, but it could happen. And it's something that CPR's Rachel Estabrook heard yesterday at a summit in Denver on the future of water. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. How could water bills change in the future? Well, so this came up in a conversation about water conservation. And the message was that people are using less water in their homes. And that's a good thing if you're interested in conservation. But the result is that utilities are having revenue problems. So they still have a lot of infrastructure to maintain and to upgrade. The message from a group of consultants and utility managers from Colorado and around the West was that pricing has to adapt so that they can still have their revenue. 
The other part of this is that they predict that cities and states would stop paying rebates if you put in a low-flow toilet, for example. Because again, indoor residential water use has come down significantly. But they might still offer rebates for outdoor irrigation. And if I don't pay based purely on consumption, uh, what would determine my rate then? Well, I'll just say again, this idea is in its infancy. But for example, the size of your home or business might determine how much water you're allotted each month. You'd pay more if your home is larger, obviously. And then you'd pay a real price if you went beyond that. I see. So square footage might determine this in the future. Right. Now, folks at this uh, Future of Water Summit must have talked about agriculture because we know that ag use is about 80 percent of water water in this state. Right. And I was really struck by how much they said still needs to get done. Um, So CPR News, you and I talked about agriculture a lot with water managers last year when the state was working on its first water plan. And now it has this goal to stop a phenomenon where ag producers sell their water rights to cities. Someone's described this as a farmer's 401k to sell their water right and then retire. Buy and dry, it's been called. Buy and dry. And that's led to there being a lot less farmland in Colorado. That's the dry part. Um, so to change that, the state has embraced the goal of having farmers and ranchers lease their water rights in, in a particularly wet year, for example, instead of selling them off altogether. Um, it's more like a sharing agreement between cities and agriculture. But making this happen sounds tough. This was the part that surprised me. So Terry Fankhauser um, from the Cattlemen's Association was at this summit yesterday, and he said creating the statewide water plan was the easy part. Now a lot of infrastructure needs to be built for ag producers to be able to lease their water rights, and it needs to be cheaper at, at the end of the day for cities to lease water than buy it. Well, otherwise, cities won't do it because it doesn't make sense for them, and that's just not true right now. All right, so setting up a system that allows something other than buy and dry. If there was one theme of this water summit, what was it? I'd say public education. Um, Nearly everyone on stage wanted there to be better understanding among the general public about how much water they use and waste and the importance of conservation. Utilities are working on this. They're trying to create apps uh, so that customers can monitor their water use let's say, sending an alert to your phone when your water use goes up significantly. Kind of like when I get an alert that says, you're using using too much data, Ryan. Right. You ran out of minutes on your cell phone. You've run out of water for the month. (laughs) And, you know, there was an interesting comment from a Vail Resorts executive who was there. Uh, Rick Cables is vice president of natural resources and conservation for that company. And um, obviously, Vail depends on water for its winter business to make snow and on summer tourism. And um, he suggested that companies like his have amazing, that was his word, marketing people that could work pro bono or in partnership with nonprofits to do water education that is part of their responsibility because they need water for their business. And he says that marketing should happen not just in Colorado, but in Vegas, in Los Angeles, other places downstream that depend on the watershed health here in Colorado. He's basically saying that ski resorts have decent marketing people. There's no reason they shouldn't lend their talents to messages about water. And he said water people don't always have those talents. (laughs) Okay. His perspective, not Rachel's. Any surprises at this summit yesterday? Well, yeah. So there was a discussion about food and food waste and how that relates to water. And a gentleman from a Denver restaurant group spoke. Uh, This is the group that runs Root Down and Linger. He said a third of the food that we grow is wasted. And then he, he kind of took the organizers to task, uh, the organizers of this water summit. The audio here is poor quality, but his message is forceful. 
not to be controversial, but I'd like to make note in this room, at the Watershed Summit 2016, there's going to be a lot of wasted drinking water left on the tables. And I feel like a mandatory option as a member of this planetary community should be to carry your own reusable water vessel. This water that's all left on these tables is going to be dumped down the sink, and then we're going to use water to clean those glasses that weren't even touched. So the fact that even at a summit about smart water use, lots of water would go to waste, pointed out that there is a big cultural change that needs to take place if Coloradans or Americans in general are going to get serious about conservation. Thanks so much, Rachel. You're welcome. That is CPR's Rachel Estabrook, who attended the 2016 Watershed Summit. It was at the Denver Botanic Gardens on Thursday. The small town of Victor, Colorado, was built on gold mining. There are some 2,500 miles of underground tunnels in the area southwest of Colorado Springs, and you can visit mines with names like the Molly Kathleen and Chicken Hawk. One of the best known, though, is the American Eagles Mine, but it's just been closed for good. CPR's Nathan Heffel went on a final tour. Greetings, folks. Thank you for coming to the American Eagles. Brad Paulson stands in the middle of 50 people as they mingle in a street corner in downtown Victor. Large bins full of blaze orange construction vests and hard hats sit on the sidewalk. Paulson works for the Newmont Cripple Creek and Victor Mining Company. And today he's overseeing the last public tour of the historic American Eagles Mine and Scenic Overlook. It's located just outside Victor's town limits. The event was co-organized by Newmont CCNV and a local nonprofit focused on area history. So what we need to do is if you're going on this American Eagles tour, you need to get hard hats, safety glasses, and vests. And the reason for all this safety equipment? Well, the only way to get to the historic American Eagles mine site and overlook is through the Crescent Open Pit Gold Mine. It's the largest modern mine of its type in Colorado. And that's the problem. See, the Crescent Mine is expanding, and Newmont CCNV says tourists trying to get to the historic site would have to share the road with rock-hauling trucks. And Paulson says those trucks are massive, as tall as a two-story home. God forbid if there had been an accident... Um, it could have put this operation out of business. And the deal is, is that we employ 580 people whose average salary is about $79,000 a year with benefits. And if we'd have an accident, um, that would shut down this mining operation. And that would have a tremendous impact, not only on our miners who are part of this community, um, but indeed, um, it would have a big impact on this community in general. It's windy here at the American Eagles mine site, situated at 10,750 feet above sea level. People walk up a steep path to the historic buildings with their cameras at the ready because the scenery is classic Colorado, with big weathered timber mine structures and, in the distance, snow-capped mountains spreading across the horizon. Waiting at the top of the overlook is former CCNV miner and historian Gary Horton. The far snow-capped peak uh, down there is Blanca Peak which is about 20 miles from uh, the uh, Colorado-New Mexico border. This long range of mountains is actually the Sangre de Cristos. Horton points out numerous mountain peaks and little towns, including Colorado City, 50 miles to the south, the Collegiate Peaks directly to the west, and on up to Leadville, over 70 miles to the north. So we're uh, quite a ways up. You can see quite a bit. It's a beautiful view. I can't say that I ever get sick of the view. 
One of the dozens making the final trip to the Overlook is Liz Hunter of Colorado Springs. She remembers childhood trips to the American Eagle's mine for picnic lunches with her parents, Cherry and Ed Hunter. Ed was a well-known mining engineer in the area with a building that bears his name in Cripple Creek. Hunter sits on a commemorative bench placed at the Overlook in her parents' honor while a friend takes a photo. Neato! That's beautiful, too. That's you on your daddy's bench and your mom's bench. An inscription on the bench reads, May all your labors be in vain. And vain is spelled V-E-I-N. Got it. Hunter opens a bag full of flower petals and sprinkles them on the bench. As the strong wind catches them, they blow up into the air. It's sad that it's closing. It's such a wonderful place. It's so beautiful to come and just look at the beautiful Sangre de Cristos, Pikes Peak, have a picnic lunch, see the mines, be close to mom and dad. Uh, this is sad that we're losing the American Eagles. That's former miner Dick Crow. He's 68 years old now and has been giving tours here six days a week, Memorial to Labor Day, for the past six years. He stands beneath the 60-foot-tall American Eagles head frame. Because it is the highest point and this view up here is spectacular. It's a wonderful old mine. Well, he's sad to see the Overlook close forever, he's comforted knowing Newmont CCNV has a plan for the historic structures. But they're going to move the mine building so people can still see that. You heard that correctly. The company is going to move all of the historic structures of the American Eagle's mine piece by piece and reassemble them somewhere else. He says it's been done a number of times before as the Crescent Surface Mine has expanded. The mine is stabilized and removed over 25 mine structures so the public can see them and at a tremendous cost, and that's not something the mine has to do. It's something they want to do, and it makes me really proud of the company. Newmont CCNV believes the structures are an important piece of the area's history, just not necessarily where they made history. But that doesn't quite satisfy Mona Campbell. It's just such a loss. Campbell works at the local history museum and can't help but tear up as people head to their cars and leave the overlook for the last time. This, you don't replicate these kind of views with historic mining and modern mining. It's, all, it's a package. It's all here. And, we're, you know, we never get to see this again. It's just going to be gone. So it's just sad. Dee DeYoung agrees. Her business is tourism. She's led mine tours around Victor and Cripple Creek for years and has visited the American Eagles Overlook since she was a little girl. How can you close down the mine? People come here from all over the world um, to see some of not just the new mining, because this is relatively new, but, you know, walk and see the head frames of the old miners. And, you know, this is as big as California gold and sometimes bigger. Brad Paulson of Newmont CCNV understands DeYoung's concern, but says the historic structures remaining on the Overlook just isn't feasible any longer. You can go to the International, um, which was preserved and relocated by CCNV and is open to the public on trails. You can drive up to the Hoosier, um, where you can get magnificent views of Pikes Peak and also that historic mine site. Bottom line, Paulson says the American Eagle's mine will be recreated somewhere new. But when? What we need to do is establish where they are going to go first, okay, and then move them to that location in a safe manner, not only for the people doing the operation, but for the community when we move them. And we have experience doing that, and we're just not sure what that time frame is at this point. Three but years, the, but the five years, ten years? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, would, I would have to guess that it would be certainly within ten years. 
Well, they can't recreate the view. Newmont CCNV is working with local officials to find a permanent new home for the American Eagle's structures. One possible site, they say, could be outside the mining district altogether. I'm Nathan Heffel, CPR News. And Nathan took a slew of photos. You can see them at cprnews.org. We're going to leave you with music from the Denver folk band Poets Row. The group is headed by husband and wife Mickey Backus and Emily Hobbs. They're releasing not one but two EPs next weekend. One is called The Armadillo and features a full band, and the other, The Artichoke, is just Bacchus and Hobbs as a duet. Here's one of the band tracks recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. The song is Knobby Knees. Covered in flies and other temporary things You twist your eyes above your chubby Row. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.